In 2016, it was, it was um, reported across multiple UK news outlets that a 17-year-old girl by the name of Stacy Irvine had to be rushed to the emergency room after suddenly collapsing due to respiratory issues. She was having a hard time breathing. And upon arrival at the emergency room, it didn't take the doctors long to discover what the issue was. And what they discovered was that Stacy had a 15-year chronic chicken nugget addiction. You heard me right. She had a 15-year chronic chicken nugget addiction. This is a very true story. And obviously, after 15 years of consuming nothing but chicken nuggets, you're going to become malnourished, which is exactly what happened to Stacy. She was severely malnourished. She had a severe case of anemia, and she had inflamed veins on her tongue. And Stacy openly admitted that she had never eaten fruits or vegetables. So this is a warning to all the kids out there, right? And it was so bad, they had to actually inject the nutrients in her to fix the malnutrition. And it all started for Stacy as a toddler around the age of two years old. Um, she had her first glorious taste of chicken nuggets and decided that was it for her. That's all she needed. And she made that very clear to her mom, who knew the ramifications of allowing her daughter to completely sustain herself on chicken nuggets. But her mom wasn't quite sure how to handle the situation. And in the demands of her daughter, overwhelming demands of her daughter, and refusal to eat anything else, mom finally gave in. Not only did she give in, she supplied the chicken nugget addiction to her daughter for the next 15 years until she finally collapsed in malnutrition. And her nutritionist said that during her 10 years of experience, she has not come across such an extreme case of food addiction. So Stacy's apathy towards her health, her apathy towards what a healthy diet would look like led to her malnutrition and it led to the serious de deterioration of her health, which could have killed her. And in our culture, uh, in our society, Western civilization, an industrialized nation, we are extremely blessed when it comes to our food choices, aren't we? I don't know about you, but I didn't have to, to eat chicken last night for dinner. I didn't have to go out in my backyard and wring the neck of a chicken, pluck the feathers, and then go through all that is entailed in eating that chicken right? And if I wanted vegetables to go with that chicken, I wasn't limited to what I was able to grow in my backyard or what I was able to trade on the open market. And if, if I wanted to eat that glorious cut of Texas brisket, I wouldn't have to go out and kill the cow, right? Because in our society, we have a choice to where we want to go. I, I have multiple grocery stores within a one-mile radius that I can drive in and I have all the fruits and vegetables my heart could desire. I have fruits from California. I've got fruits from Florida that I didn't have to drive down there and go pick up. And I can have any cut of meat that I want. I have hundreds of options on meats, different seasonings, different cuts. And if I don't want to cook it in the oven, I can go to the frozen food and I can cook it in five minutes or less, right? But we also know that in the midst of all those choices and the ease at which we can go grocery shopping, we've got to be a little bit picky on what it is that we're buying, right? Not all foods are created equal, and not all foods are going to offer the life-sustaining nutrients that we need. It matters what it is that we consume. If we consume a low-nutrient, unbalanced food, like Stacy, for a duration of time, we're going to send our bodies into malnutrition and deterioration and possibly leading to our death. And we're going to look at a church, a church that was in Laodicea, in our passage this morning. And it reveals to us that, like Stacy, with her serious food issues, we can put ourselves in a position to where our affections are misdirected to the things of this world rather than beholding the beauty and the glory of Christ. 
And this gives us an illusion, a false illusion of nutrition, of spiritual nutrition. But in reality, we have become spiritually malnourished and apathetic to the things of Christ. And we begin to slip into spiritual atrophy leading to our ultimate death. We are also going to see in this passage, though, that there is a hope for the church at Laodicea. And there's a hope for Fisherville Baptist Church. And that our only hope is to fall on our face in front of our only source of life. And behold the glory and the beauty of Christ for the glory of of Christ. So this is the situation in which we find the church at Laodicea in the context in which this church is called to minister. So before we go to the passage, just a little bit of background on the book of Revelation. So Revelation was written to seven churches in Asia Minor, and Asia Minor is uh, western Turkey, western modern Turkey along the coastline. And these churches were experiencing waves, strong waves of persecution underneath the Roman emperor Domitian. Um, he, he had incorporated emperor worship. Um, and, of course, that just caused a whole world of issues for the church and for believers at the time. And as we read through these seven letters to the seven churches, we find something very critical and important. All but two of these churches... All but two had in some form or fam uh, manner compromised their witness to the Roman pagan culture that needed the gospel. And these churches are called to account by none other than Christ himself with very dire, strong, firm warnings. But we also see that they're called upon to conquer and they're called upon to endure. And as I looked at these letters, it, it always amazes me how I am reminded that Scripture, it's living, it's breathing, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Sorry. And it's also timeless. And what I mean by that is that these letters were written to very specific churches in a specific context in time and space, right? These were written to seven real churches. But they weren't just written to those seven churches. They were also written to every church that ever existed in church history. All seven of the letters are for every church. And all seven of these letters are for just as much for us today at Fisherville in 2019 as they were for these seven churches in Asia Minor. Why? Because there is a very real danger that any church can be pulled to and fro by the waves of the culture. There's a very real danger that a church can become apathetic to the things of Christ. There's a very real danger that a church can embrace false teachings. There's a very real danger that a church can bow to the pressures of society and that we can become blinded to our own reality. And in the face of that, we need to be reminded of where truth is found. So this message is just, for, uh, just as much today for us. And so while we do find painful rebukes in this letter, and they are painful, we also find hope. Because Christ begins each of these seven letters to the seven churches with a solution to the problems that these churches find themselves in. He begins each letter with himself. He points them immediately back to himself. And in each of the beginning of these letters, he describes himself in glorious ways. And so at the beginning of this, we find that Christ is sovereign over his creation. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha the Omega. He is the creator. He is the originator of creation itself. He wields the sword of justice. He is the faithful 
and true witness. He is the amen. And he is beckoning us this morning, like he beckoned the church at Laodicea, to behold his glory. So let's look at this church at Laodicea now. So what was taking place at Laodicea that, that was causing this? And we know that it was possible that Laodicea was planted by a guy, by a guy named Epaphras, um, which was, he was from the church of Colossae, which was not real far away uh, from Laodicea. But we've, what we find out from this passage is that Laodicea was a very wealthy city, and it was very well known for its wealth. Um, they were a city also known for a very high-quality black wool that they produced, and that black wool was spun into different types of clothings and linens and I'm sure all kinds of textiles. Um, Laodicea was at the crossroads, major crossroads of several different trade routes. So this would have been a high commodity for those trade routes and it would have brought about enormous wealth for the city of Laodicea. Um, they were also known for a medical school. It's hard to imagine a medical school that many years ago uh, with, the way, with where technology was then, but they had a medical school. In fact, it was specialized. They had a school of optometry, and they were very well known for this school, and this school of optometry produced an eye salve that was very popular, used to help people see with um, eye problems. It was also very well known for its banking industry. Laodicea was a center of banking, which, as we know, brings with it wealth or the possibility of wealth. And because of this wealth, Laodicea was, a, was very much a rugged, independent culture and society. We would think of them as a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Uh, that was the mentality that was taking place there. Case in point, there was a damaging earthquake there that took place in 60 AD that nearly wiped the city out. Um, it did a tremendous amount of damage. Um, and back then, just like today, the federal government goes in after a hurricane, does tremendous damage in the state of Florida, and they offer financial aid. Federal government is going to give that state aid to rebuild what was destroyed. Well, Rome did a very similar thing. So they offered financial aid to Laodicea to help them rebuild, and the city said, nope, we got this. And they did. They rebuilt the city on their own, and they were very proud of that fact. And one Roman historian said, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources with no help from us. So they were confident and they were independent. And again, this is the culture with which we find Laodicea. Let's turn now to Revelation beginning in verse 14. I'm just going to read the passage here. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works. You are neither hot or cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and I discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne." is I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit of the churches says. And so the beginning in this, in verse 14, we see, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write. And here we see this command is to an angel, and there's a lot of speculation over what is meant by angel here. Some say it was an actual angelic being that came down and delivered the message. Some others say, no, 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 it was the it was the elder at the church um, that was being described as the angel. And others say, no, it's just a messenger that was sent from John on the island of Patmos to go deliver these messages. But either way, the point here, and what is being trying to be said, is that Christ has ultimate authority over his church 
in his creation. You say, well, where are you getting that from? Well, let's back at Revelation 1. In Revelation 1, verse 16, it says this, In his right hand he held seven stars. In his right hand he held seven stars. Well, he doesn't stop. He goes on down to verse 20, and he interprets that for us. He tells us what he means by those seven stars. He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So it is Christ who holds the churches and the angels in his right hand, demonstrating his authority and his rule over them. Well, he continues, and it says that Christ begins by identifying himself. He's identifying himself in this. It's absolutely amazing. He's identifying himself as the amen, which in the Hebrew can be translated as truly or truth. And we see that in the Old Testament in several locations. He further unpacks that, and, he's, and he goes on and says, the faithful and true witness. So Christ is not only the source of truth, he is truth. As the amen, Christ is the affirmation of all of God's promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 reminds us that for all of, all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Christ also identifies himself as the beginning of creation. Now, John has not jumped off the bandwagon here and dived headfirst into heresy. That has not happened. He is not identifying Christ as the first created being. That's not what he's trying to say. What he's doing is reminding the church at Laodicea that he is the Alpha and the Omega, that he is the beginning and the end. He is the beginning of the creation since the world was created through him. We see that in Colossians chapter 1. As God, he is eternal. He is without beginning and he is without end. And the CSB has a very helpful translation here. They take that word and they translate it as originator. It's very helpful to think about it. He is the originator. He is the faithful and true witness, and he's faithful and true to fulfill what has been promised, including ultimately his death, burial, and resurrection. So Christ is not only the originator of creation, he is the originator of our salvation, the new creation. Amen? The point remains that Christ is sovereign ruler over his creation, and he is not only the source of all truth, he is truth. He is the amen. He is the only source of life-giving nutrition. Given that he is the amen, he alone can accurately diagnose the heart issue in Laodicea, and he alone can reorientate them from the lies of the culture to the truth, that is himself, so that they and so that we at Fisherville can once again behold his glory. Now, let's take a look at the message. And at first point, Christ reveals the symptoms that are taking place at Laodicea. Look with me in verse 15. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So the water that is flowing into the, Laod into the city of Laodicea was very well known for being just nasty water because it was lukewarm. Laodicea was getting its water. It was flowing actually from another city further north called Herodicea. And the waters at Herodicea were piping hot. But by the time the water traveled from north of the city to the city, it cooled to a nasty lukewarm temperature. Now the city of Colossae, which we already said was also nearby, it was the complete opposite. The city of Colossae had a very cold and refreshing water um, that flew through it, but Laodicea had neither. And there's a common interpretation here that what was being desired was for Laodicea to be hot, spiritually hot, like the city of here, like the waters coming from Herodicea, rather than spiritually cold, like the waters coming out of Colossae. But I think given the local context and what we now know about the waters flowing through those cities, I think it is more likely that Christ is communicating to them 
that they have been compromised in their witness to the culture and they are no use to Christ. They have found themselves in a position where they have been compromised and they are of no use. And so what happens here? Because of this, Christ threatens to spit them out of his mouth. And the original word here actually has a stronger connotation to it as well. Again, the CSB picks up on this. But the word can actually be translated vomit. That he was so disgusted by the lukewarm spiritual apathy taking place in this church, the apathy to the things of God, that he is going to vomit them out of his mouth. They were called to be zealous. They were called to be effective witnesses of the faithful and true witnesses, Christ himself. But instead, they are stale. They are without zeal. And they are neither like the refreshing cold waters of Colossae or the healing hot waters of Herodosia. He knows their works. It's not that they aren't doing anything. He begins the verse, I know your works. It just happens to be that their works are ineffective because they are no longer moved by the glory of God. How easy is it for us, like the Laodiceans, to fall into spiritual apathy? To fall into a place where we just go through the motions? How easy is it for us to fall into a place where we get into a check-the-box Christianity? We come to church on Sunday morning, we sit in the pews, we sing the songs, we interact with brothers and sisters in Christ, we read our Bibles on a daily basis, but we are no longer moved by the beauty of Christ. We are apathetic. So have we, like the Laodiceans, fallen into spiritual apathy? Well, what is apathy? How do we define apathy? Webster defines it this way, a lack of feeling, emotion, interest, or concern. Apathy is a state of indifference or the suppression of emotions, such as concern, excitement, motivation, or passion. The Laodiceans, like the Ephesians, um, which we, we talked about in December, were apathetic because they lost their first love. They lost their passion and their zeal for Christ because something else stole it. And Matthew 6, 24 reminds us that no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he will despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God or any other idol. Fill in the blank. There is no middle ground. It is either God or it's something else. We will either love our idols or we will love Christ. We cannot. It is impossible to love both. So Christ goes on and he diagnoses the heart of the problem. Look with me in verse 17. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. As we have already stated this morning, Laodicea was a wealthy, self-reliant, prideful, confident city. It didn't want for anything. Not unlike our American context, right? Look at our society around us. We have the same temptations and pitfalls that we're facing the culture in the, in the city and the church Laodicea. And this self-reliant pride revealed itself in their posture towards Christ and I don't need anything. They are boasting of their spiritual self-reliance and revealing how blind they were to the reality of their situation. Instead of zealously reflecting on the beauty of Christ, the pagan culture, and zealously pursuing the things of Christ, they were boasting of their superficial accomplishments and had been fooled themselves 
into a spiritual superiority. I need nothing. I don't need the gospel anymore. I don't need to be warmed. My affections no longer need to be warmed to Christ. The church at Laodicea became blind. They didn't even realize the reality and the danger of their situation. In consuming the lies of their cultural idols, they were in danger of those idols consuming them. Notice the specificity in their words, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Notice the eyes. Not God has blessed us, not God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and has graciously sold some of that cattle. No acknowledgement of who the rightful owner of those riches are. As the song that we sung this morning confesses, Christ owns it all. He is the king. If we were to climb into a time machine and travel back to the first century and visit this church of Laodicea, walk in on a Sunday morning, sit in the pews, if they had pews, whatever it was they were using, a wooden bench, but sit there and just watch the service take place. I bet it would look like a lot of churches in Western civilization on a Sunday morning. I bet there'd be greeters at the door to welcome you. I bet they'd probably hand you a bulletin, right? You'd, you'd walk into service. You'd sit down. There would be probably an opening prayer, right? They'd be singing hymns. I bet somebody would be preaching the word on Sunday morning. I bet they'd be interacting. I bet they'd be talking with each other, laughing, cutting up. I bet you would see real concern and the drain of life on some of the faces of the members as they're suffering and things that are taking place around them. I bet all of these things would be would be there, and I bet it would be noticed. But I also bet that behind the scenes, what you may not see on the outside, because Christ has diagnosed the heart, is that there is no longer a zeal for Christ. They are no longer moved to a true worship. Christ knows His church. He walks among the lampstands. He walks amongst his churches today and he knows the heart of every man. He knows the heart of every church and he won't be fooled by outward appearances. He knows what has captured our affections. Instead of rich, he knows that they are actually poor, spiritually poor. In fact, we see a, di a direct contrast here to the church at Smyrna, who was in all reality, financially poor. In Revelation 2.9, he says this, and this is to the church of Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Smyrna didn't compromise with the culture. And that unwillingness to compromise with the culture had real financial implications for them. It cost them in worldly riches. They were poor. But Christ says, no, you are rich. You are spiritually rich. Why? Because they have Christ. Instead of self-sufficient, the church at Laodicea, they were self-deceived. They were blind and naked. In reality, they couldn't have been further from where they perceived themselves to be. The city that made the eye salve to help people see were themselves blind to their own wretchedness and cultural compromise. Christ was no longer their amen, and Christ no longer captured their hearts. The pursuit of the empty, deceiving promises of this world will leave us nothing but wretched, pitiable, poor, and blind. We have to ask ourselves this question. Which master are we serving? Who or what, for that matter, in all reality is actually our king? Is Christ beautiful to us? Or are we falling for the lies and the empty promises of the cultural idols that bombard us day in and day out? And as bad as this situation is, and it is a DEFCON 5 situation. 
They are not without hope. We see in verse 18 that there is a solution to the predicament that they're in. In the beginning in verse 18, we find the remedy to the situation. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. There is a solution and that solution is to behold the beauty and the glory of Christ on full display which he laid out for us at the beginning of this letter rather than beholding the false lives of the culture. Notice the first point in this. Buy from me the gold refined by fire. Refined gold is pure. The impurities have been removed through the heat of the fire. Christ is revealing to the church at Laodicea the foolishness of the world's understanding of riches and calling on them to purify themselves by humbling themselves at the foot of the cross because it's in Christ alone that they are going to find their true riches. They are called upon to put on the white garments, again, signaling purity. And it's, not, it's remarkable that it's white. This is the city known for and proud of its black wool. Being called to remove the culture and put on the white garments to cover their shame and their nakedness. They don't recognize the ways in which the culture has stained the garments that they're wearing and left them standing bare and naked in their sin. Again, they're called upon to spiritual purity by putting on Christ. Finally, they are called upon to buy from Christ the salve that will open their eyes to the reality of their situation. Because it is Christ alone that we see ourselves for who we really are. In the, in the reflection of the righteousness of Christ, we see our utter and complete dependence upon Him. Because without Him, we would be left in our sin. Our corrupted lenses of the world must be recalibrated, and that can only happen by turning to truth Himself. That is Christ. So how does one buy this gold? How does one buy the white garments? And how does one buy the eye salve? Take a look at Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Because Christ loves us, he disciplines us. It is a means of grace. And he calls us to humble ourselves and repent so that we won't be vomited out of his mouth. The world tells us that to love someone is to let them linger in their sin, right? The world tells us that if you're going to love somebody, you're, you're going to let them just engage in every sinful activity and desire that captures their attention that day, right? And it's a mentality like that of Stacy's mother, who let her daughter, knowing what those chicken nuggets are going to do to her health, right? Knowing what it was going to do to her, could potentially kill her, knew it was going to at least malnourish her at the least, allowed her to continue in it, supported it, actually, by buying it from her. Stacy was blind to the reality of her situation. She needed the love of her mother to discipline her and to reveal to her, to change reality for her so she could see the situation. in. And Christ does exactly that for us. He disciplines us because He loves us. It is a means of grace. And we need that discipline to remove the veil from our eyes so that we can see how we actually are. So Christ calls His church to repent and to be zealous in the pursuit of what only he can offer, recognizing with fresh eyes the beauty and the glory of our Lord and Savior. Isaiah tells us, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Purity is only found through Christ in the power of the gospel. Cleansing and healing come through the amen, the faithful and true witness who lived a perfect life. He died for those sins and he rose again, becoming the originator of our salvation. If you repent and believe, your stained garments can be made white as snow. Look with me in verse 20, and we see a beautiful promise here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, I know a lot of you are probably familiar with this verse, and it often comes up as a, as a it's probably one of the primary verses used in evangelism. Um, and given the context here, I would not argue that this is a primary evangelism verse. And the reason that I say that is because I believe John is writing to a church. I believe, believe that he is writing to a group of believers who have wandered too far into their cultural context and found themselves blind to the reality of their situation. They have found themselves in a situation where they are no longer consuming, communing with Christ and exemplifying Christ to the world. Rather, they're communing with the culture rather than loving and adoring their Lord and Savior. They have figuratively placed Christ outside the door because they don't need anything. They have been fooled by their idea, their spiritual superiority that they thought that they were in. So how do we commune with Christ? How do we open the door and allow Christ back in? And he identified that by first repenting and then communing with Christ through the means of grace that he has made available to us. And that is by seeking Christ daily through the study and the application. Not check the box. Not just reading for reading's sake. But approaching the word of God looking for the beauty of Christ and looking for him to be revealed to us so that we can see our sin as it actually is so that we can repent and so that we can grow in grace and godliness and also through communing with the body of believers by communing with the saints it is through these means of grace that we are constantly and continually continually reorienting our world to the truth, and the only place that we can find that truth, and that is Christ. He doesn't stop there with a promise to open that door and to commune and come back and commune with us. He also says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who holds fast to the truth, to the faithful and true witness, even if it costs us everything in this life. And it very well may. It could cost us our finances like the church of Smyrna. It could cost us our complete understanding of our way of life. It could cost us our reputation with the world around us. It can cost us friendships. It can cost us status. It will definitely cost us our idols. It'll cost us a life of ease. If we hold on to Christ, we will gain so much more than this life can possibly begin to offer us. So much more than the Laodiceans thought they had already gained. Christ is promising us to sit with him on his throne. This is not a momentary reality. This is an eternal reality an eternal riches that can only be found through him. But what does this mean for Fisherville in 2019? What are we to learn from this? First, we have to recognize that there is nothing new under the sun. The challenges and the temptations that plagued the church in the first century also challenge churches today. Like the church at Laodicea, there's a lot of similarities between the culture of Laodicea and Western civilization and the industrialized nations like the U.S. The church at Laodicea crossed that cultural boundary that they shouldn't have crossed. 
And we have to ask, have we, like the Laodicean church, allowed our biblical understanding of the world, the biblical lens through which we see and understand and interpret the world, to become tainted by it? Have we become spiritually apathetic? Have we lost our zeal and are we no longer effective witnesses for Christ? Or are we witnesses for the idols that have stolen our affections? To answer that question, I think we first need to quickly analyze our culture and think critically about it. The culture in which we live, we work, we play, that we engage. What is the American culture like? Well, I'd say first, we're a proud, individualistic society, not unlike the culture surrounding Laodicea. We are also, like, the, like their culture, we are a pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, right? How many times have you heard these things? If you put your mind to it, you can do it. You can do anything that you want. Don't let anything or anyone get in your way of success. The only one holding you back is you. We are proud of our ability to raise ourselves up from the ashes, to take ourselves from poverty to wealth, right? And we are a wealthy society. That would be the second earmark, I think, of our society. We are a wealthy society. One 2013 analysis states this, America's bottom ventile is still richer than most of the world. That is, the typical person in the bottom 5% of the American in income distribution, this is the bottom 5%, are still richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. So the bottom 5% in our culture are better off than 68% of the rest of the world. That's shocking, isn't it? How easy for us it to be fooled and to think that where I am isn't quite enough right? Well, I'm not, I'm not that wealthy. Why? Because there's always somebody more wealthy than us. We can always see somebody with a larger house. We can see somebody who's got the nicer car. And so it's easy to fool ourselves into thinking that, that we live in absolute utter poverty. Not to say that there aren't people in the U.S. that do live and are living on the streets, right? I'm not denying those facts. But I'm saying it's very easy to fool ourselves with the wealth that is prevalent in our culture, we are consumers as well. This one needs a little bit more unpacking. We are blessed to live in a free market capitalist economy. I wouldn't want to live under any other society. And it's because of that, that one and two, and three, that all three of these are possible and are there. And it's because of the wealth and because of this individualism that comes out of capitalism that these things are possible. And it's why we live in one of the wealthiest societies in the history of the world. Immense ingenuity and hours of hard work produce the society in which we live. But like anything in a fallen world, ideas have consequences. And one of the consequences of our free market society is something we call consumerism. Webster defines it this way, the theory that an increasing consumption of goods is economically desirable. The theory that an increasing Consumption of goods is economically desirable. Also, a preoccupation with and an inclination towards the buying of consumer goods. So the underlying theory is that the, the demands for, for goods from the civilization increases production. And that, in turn, increases business, increases more businesses. Businesses come up, and those produce jobs, which is, in turn, good for the economy. It's kind of hard to argue with that, right? And I mean, we see that every day around us. That's how our economy functions. And it's not terrible on its surface. But as Christians, we're not called just to evaluate economically what's going on around us. We are called to take the philosophies and the ideas of the world and we hold them against the truths of Scripture. Not only the philosophies, but their implications. And we come out with what truly is reality. And while there is much good in our free market societies, we, like the Laodiceans, because of that, we're rugged individualists, we're self-reliant, we're wealthy, and we have opened ourselves up, albeit unwittingly, to the negative side effects of consumerism. That being pride, 
idolatry in the material world or materialism, and self-worship. We want what we want, and we want it now, and we want it easy. We as a society have become impatient, picky, and in our consumerist mindset have reduced everything to a what is in it for me philosophy, creating a foundation of me-ism. Consuming has become a cultural idol, and the church is not immune. The worship of this idol will lead to spiritual apathy, and that idol will steal our affections from Christ and steal our joy. Our idols make terrible saviors, and they will only demand more of us until they completely consume us. As our affections for Christ are stolen, our love of self increases until we find ourselves in a serious situation of apathy. When we often don't even recognize that we've been affected by our surrounding culture, do we? Because it sneaks up on us. It comes up subtly until we are tempted and lured and taken over. So how does this play out in our lives? How do we know if we've lost our zeal for Christ and corrupted our witness to the world around us? How do we know if our affections have drifted from Christ to our idols? A couple of things that we can look at here. If we've been affected and if we have fallen for the idol of meism, our relationships will go from a two-way street to a one-way street. Our lack of zeal for Christ turns our relationships with our friends, our coworkers, our family members, our spouses, our children from a loving, life-giving, God-honoring relationship to idle pacification. I have a need that I want this person to meet. It becomes about me. And this also includes how we can end up approaching our churches. Maybe we approach the church with a supermarket mentality, a shopping mall mentality. What can I find for me from this church and our relationships within the church? And if our desires are no longer met, we become bitter, angry, discontent, and we begin to manipulate those around us to get what we want, don't we? Or... We go looking for someone else who will satisfy our meism. We might find that we have a rotating door of relationships and everyone else is the problem. They are a means to satisfying an idol, not God's creation made in his image whom we are to love in Christ's likeness. And gentlemen, the epitome of consumerism is pornography. When we don't see women as created in the image of God, but we reduce them to a tool for our own satisfaction. We glory in ourselves rather than beholding the glory of Christ. So we see it affect our relationships. The meist will probably experience an extremely dry worship or their worship will be non-existent. Our daily Bible study becomes dry. We may read to check the box, but again, we are not looking for truth. We are not looking for God to open the eyes, open our eyes to the reality of our situation. Our prayer life will become, if it exists at all, will become sporadic, probably only popping up when there's a major crisis that has come out in front of us. Or maybe there's just something we really want. And so, in a rare situation, we'll turn to God and ask for those things. We may sit underneath the preaching of the word week in and week out, but we walk away saying, he's not talking about me. He's he's, got to be talking about somebody else. There's a lack of zeal and concern for the things of Christ because I'm good right now. I've got what I need. I don't need anything. Thirdly, and I think this encompasses all of it, there's an unwillingness to sacrifice. We will, 
always devote our time, our energy, and our resources to the things that we love. If we have fallen into spiritual apathy and something has stolen our affections, we will probably not be willing to sacrifice our time, our love, our energy to the body of believers. We will probably not devote and sacrifice our time, our resources, and our energy to evangelism, to those lost and dying neighbors all around us every day that are waiting for a believer to engage them, to love on them, so that they can see and behold the beauty of Christ. It takes time, especially in our American culture. It takes years for somebody in America to come to faith in Christ from the first time they meet a believer. That is where we are as a culture. So it takes long-term sacrifice in loving that non-believer, doesn't it? How about discipleship relationships? We are not going to be willing to, to sacrifice the time, the energy, and the resources that it takes to disciple a brother or sister in Christ, to love on them, because it's all about me. Our priority becomes self-worship. And so sacrificed on the altar of self is an, actionable, is an actionable love for the body, evangelism, and discipleship. And we have all been influenced by the culture to some extent. Oftentimes more than we would like to admit or more than we're willing to admit. Again, a fish doesn't know that it's wet. So like the Laodiceans, we could be compromising our witness because we no longer see Christ as beautiful and glorious. What we need, like the church at Laodicea, is to be reoriented to the truth of Christ through the power of the gospel. We too have been called upon to buy from Christ the gold that is pure, to put on the white clothes. We also need to buy the eye salve that only Christ can offer to open our eyes to the reality of our situation that we have, been, have fallen for another. We need to see rightly how beautiful our Savior and how bitter our sin. And the remedy is ours through the power of the gospel. If we repent and remove the impurities of the culture and our idols, we can once again commune with Christ because he stands at the door and he knocks. It's not too late for our affections to once again be warmed by the amen, the true and faithful witness, the alpha and the omega, the originator of our salvation. So let us today behold the beauty and the glory of Christ. Let's pray.